Amen. All right, we're there in Luke chapter number three. And of course, we are making our way through the book of Luke on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights. We are in, on a journey with Jesus, and uh, we are learning all about the life of Jesus and uh, studying this gospel together. And tonight, uh, we are going to uh, pick up right where we left off this morning. And this morning, we went through Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Tonight, we're going to pick up right at verse number 10. And if you remember, this morning we saw John's ministry, and we learned about John the Baptist and uh, the ministry, the impactful ministry that he had. And we saw that his ministry was focused on getting people saved, but not only getting people saved, helping those new believers become fully engaged followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And obviously we know that the ministry of Christ had not yet started, but he was preparing them for uh, the Lord. He was preparing them for the one that was uh, coming. Now, just real quickly, just to set the context and to give you a little bit of review, if you remember from this morning, we saw that there were some who uh, did not take well to John's preaching. His preaching was bold, it was direct, it was applicable, and, uh, and as a result, he gained some enemies. In Luke chapter 3, if you look at 19, verses 19 and 20 again, the Bible says, but Herod the patriarch, being reproved by him, referring to John, John had reproved and preached against Herod, who was a political leader, by him for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, added yet to this above all, that he shut up John in prison. So we know that because of John's Bible preaching ministry and the fact that he uh, preached the word and he uh, made sin exceeding sinful, he gained some enemies, and of course, any Bible-believing preacher, any, any preacher that preaches the Bible and preaches it consistently, doesn't skip anything, you're going to develop some enemies. There's going to be some people that aren't going to like uh, what you have to say because they don't like the Word of God, because they don't like what God has to say. So we saw this morning that he had developed some enemies, but tonight, I want you to focus on the fact, and we're going to focus on the fact that there were some sincere converts that actually uh, believed and appreciated the preaching of John. We saw that this morning. We saw that they were baptized, they were saved and baptized, they were growing in the Lord. But we're going to pick up right there in verse number 10. And I want you to notice that in, in this passage we're going to look at, uh, specifically verses 10, uh, 11, 12, 13, and 14, we have this question that keeps coming up. It's this question that these converts of John are asking. John is getting them saved. He's getting them baptized. He's helping them grow. He's preparing the way of the Lord. And now they're curious about how to live the Christian life. They're asking this question. Notice there in verse 10, the Bible says, and the people, this is the first group, and the people asked him. And these are not like the Pharisees and the Sadducees that we talked about this morning. These are sincere converts, new Christians, babes in Christ. The people asked him, saying, I want you to notice this question that they asked. This is the right question for every Christian to ask. This is the right question for every new believer, old believer, uh, a believer that's right with God, or a believer that needs to get right with God. This is the question to ask. They asked John, what shall we do then? They said, what shall we do then? Notice there in verse number 12, you have the second group. The first group is in verse 10. We saw it says the people. In verse 12, we have another group, a second group of sincere converts. Notice what it says. Then came also 
publicans. So in verse 10, we have the people. In verse 12, we have the publicans. These are not the republicans, all right? They're not a political uh, group. This is a group of tax collectors. We're going to see that here in a minute. But the Bible says, Then came also publicans to be baptized and said unto him, Master, notice the question they asked, What shall we do? Very similar. The people said, What shall we do then? After hearing John's preaching, after hearing his Bible uh, message, they asked this question, what shall we do then? Then we see the publicans, after John had got done preaching the word of God and, and teaching them about the Bible, they said, Master, what shall we do? Then in verse 14, we've got a third group. Notice there in verse 14, and the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, notice what this third group asked, this group of soldiers. They said, and what shall we do? And I'm here to tell you tonight, when you come to a place like Verity Baptist Church or any church where the Word of God is being preached and the Bible is opened, it is explained, it is expounded upon, it is made clear, it is given to you in clarity and urgency, and it is applied to your life the proper response is not, I'm offended. The proper response is not, uh, I don't want to hear that. The proper response should always be to ask this question, what shall we do then? What shall we do? What shall we do? I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul before he was Paul and he was Saul on the road to Tarsus. If you remember the story, as he was on the road to Tarsus, the Bible tells us the Lord Jesus Christ in his glorified body appeared to him and, and, and had a conversation with him. And the response of the Apostle Paul at that conversation, what he said was this, Lord, what will thou have me to do? And that is always the right question. That is always the proper question. As a believer, I hope you're here tonight and you are curious you, I hope you're here on a Sunday night saying, I want, to, I want to know what God says. I want to know what the Bible says because I want to know what it is that God wants me to do. What does God want me to do? What shall we do then? So I want you to notice tonight, we're going to look at these three groups. We'll move through it as quickly as we can. I want you to notice the response that John gives to these three groups. They all ask pretty much the same question. What shall we do then? What shall we do? But he gives them different responses. And I want you to notice that tonight. And if you're taking notes, I want to encourage you to, of course, jot some of these things down on the back of the course of the week. There's a place for you to take some notes. The first thing he tells this, the first group, and if you, if you remember, the first group is the people. He tells them to be generous. Notice what he says there in Luke chapter 3 and verse number 10. And the people, this is group number one, asked him, saying, what shall we do then? He answered, answereth and saith unto them, notice what he says, he says, he that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, the word meat is the Bible word for our word food, he that hath meat or food, let him do likewise. Here we have the people asking. These people just got saved. They just got baptized. They're starting their walk with God. And they're asking this very sincere question. They're saying, what shall we do? And John says, let me tell you what you should do. Here's what you should do. If you have two coats, you ought to find someone that doesn't have any coats, and you ought to give one of your coats to the guy that doesn't have a coat. And if you have enough food 
for more than yourself and more than your family and more than what you need, then you ought to find someone who doesn't have any food and do likewise. John here is telling them, you know what you should do after you get saved? You know what you should do after you get baptized? You know what you should do if you want to begin to walk with God and be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? He says, you ought to learn to be generous. You ought to learn to, to be generous with the things that you have. He says, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Now keep your place there in Luke chapter 3, if you would. And go with me to the uh, book of 1 John, towards the end of the New Testament. You've got the book of 1 John. It's a little book. If you start in the book of Revelation and head backwards, you have the book of Jude. And then you have 3, 2, and 1 John. Go to 1 John chapter number 3, if you would. 1 John chapter number 3. You know, the Bible says we just got done with this uh, Christmas season, and uh, we're in the new year, and we're done with Christmas. The Bible tells us in the book of Acts that Jesus said, it's interesting because it's a quote of Jesus in the book of Acts. The quote from Jesus is not found in the Gospels. He said it, but it's not something that was recorded in the Gospels. It was recorded in the book of Acts as something that Jesus said while he was on this earth, but he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. He taught us that there is a secret in generosity, that the blessing is not in receiving, but the blessing is in giving and being generous. And here we find John telling these people, they, they just got saved. They want to know, what should we do? And he says, he that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. He says, you know what you ought to learn, is you ought to learn how to be generous. And I'm here to tell you tonight, Verity Baptist Church, you know what you ought to learn, and you know what I ought to learn, is to be generous. We ought to learn to give. You say, who should we give? Well, we should give to others. You're there in First John chapter 3. Notice verse 17. 1 John 3.17, the Bible says this, But whoso hath this world's goods, so you, you've got the, the goods of this world, the merchandise of this world. Notice, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? See, the Bible teaches that the way that we show our love, the way that we show our affection for, towards someone is by what we're willing to give, is by how we're willing to sacrifice and to be generous and to provide. The most famous verse in the Bible tells us about the love of God. It says, for God so loved the world. But when God wanted to prove his love for us, you know what he did is he gave. In fact, he proved his love by what he was willing to give. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. This is why the Bible says that God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, the best way to show your love is to be generous, is to give. We ought to give to others. If you've got these, the, the world's goods and you see your brother in need, uh, we ought not shut up our bowels of compassion from him. Go, if you would, to First Chronicles 29. 1 Chronicles 29, in the Old Testament, you've got the books of the Bible that are the one and two books. They're all clustered together. 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, 
First Chronicles 29. Let me say this when it comes to giving, and, and we don't preach a lot about giving at Verity Baptist Church. If you uh, come to our church for any length of time, you know that's true. It, I mean, we'll go weeks and weeks and months and months without uh, preaching on giving, but uh, when we're preaching through the Bible, if it's in the text, then we're going to deal with it. And the uh, John here is teaching us about a Christian discipline, which is a discipline to give. We ought to give to others. But let me say this as well. We also ought to give to the work of God. We ought to support the work of the Lord. Are you there in 1 Chronicles 29? Look at verse 3. The Bible says this, Moreover, because I have set my affection to the house of my God. Here's David saying, I have set my affection. What's the word affection mean? It means love. Because I love the house of my God. What to God that you and I could say today that we have an affection for the house of God? That we have a love for the house of my God. And of course, we know that in the Old Testament, the house of God was a tabernacle and then a temple. But the Bible tells us in the New Testament that the church of the living God is the house of God. The church, the local church, is the house of the Lord today. And here, David says, I've sent my affection to the house of my God. He says, I have of mine own proper good of gold and silver, which I've given to the house of my God. Notice what he says, over and above all that I prepared for the holy house. He says, I've sent my affection to the house of my God. You say, well, prove it, David. David says, I'm happy to prove it. He says, I'm happy to put my uh, money where my mouth is. He says, I have given, he says, of mine own proper good of gold and silver, which I have given to the house of my God. I want you to notice what he says there. He says, over and above. He says, I'm not just talking about some uh, law that God gave that I was to give him 10%. Now, that's in the Bible, and David did that. He says, but I wasn't just giving God what God required of me. He says, I gave over and above. He said, I, I, I gave to show my affection. And sometimes when you preach about these things, uh, people don't like you talking about money, and I understand that. But let me say this. If, if you're here tonight, you say, I don't like preachers talking about money. You know, Jesus said this, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And it may be that you don't like preachers preaching on money because your heart's not right. Here we have uh, John talking to these new converts. It's funny to me because we get this idea and say, well, let people be saved for a while and let let them be saved for a long time and and help them grow a little bit before you start talking to them about tithing and offerings and giving, you know. When they're a new Christian, don't talk to them about that. Well, John must have not got that memo because these people literally just got saved and baptized. I mean, they got saved. He takes them down the Jordan River. He baptized them. They come up out of the water. They say, what now? And he says, you ought to give. He says, you ought to be generous. You say, why would John say that? Here's why. Because where your treasure is, there where your heart be also. Some of you would have more of a love for the work of God and the house of God if you supported the work of God. If you got financially committed into the work of the Lord. And let me say this, go, go to Luke if you would, go back to Luke. Go back to Luke, but don't go to Luke 3. Flip over to Luke chapter 6 if you would. Let me say this about giving. The reason that Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. You are more blessed. It is a benefit for you to give than you receive. See, I love the paradoxes in the Bible. 
All throughout the Bible, God gives us these paradoxes that make absolutely no sense. You, you, you would think, well, no, it's more blessed to receive than to give. It's more blessed to keep than to give. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. How does that make sense? But here's why it makes sense. And it only makes sense if you have faith in God. Because it's more blessed to give than to receive. Here's why. Because you cannot outgive God. You cannot give more to anyone or anything than God will bless you and give back to you. Are you there in Luke chapter 6? Look at verse 38. Luke 6 and verse 38, the Bible says this. This is Jesus. He says, give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over shall men give uh, into your bosom. For with the same measure, and here's the key. Here's the key to understanding giving. He says, with the same measure that ye meet. Say, what does that mean? He says, with the same measuring cup that you decide to measure how much you're going to give, he says, with all, it shall be measured to you again. He says, look, God will not be outgiven by you. He says, give, and it shall be given unto you. But when God gives to you, and I always bring this out when we look at this passage, I think of a measuring cup and like flour or sugar or some sort of product like that that you're measuring out. He says, look, when God gives to you, he's going to take the same measuring cup that you decided to scoop out to give to others, that you decided to scoop out to support the work of God. He said, as soon as you put that measuring cup down, he's going to pick that same measuring cup up and he's going to scoop out of his blessings. But the difference is that when God does it, he will do it with good measure, pressed down, shaken together. He's going to make sure it's compacted. There's no air bubbles there. He's going to get in. The idea is he's going to get in as much as he can into that same measuring cup that you use. He says, and running over shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet, with all it shall be measured to you again. And we won't take the time to look at it, but when you look at the passage, in fact, if, if you would go with me to the book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, you have Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. If you look at the passage in Malachi about tithing and consistently supporting the work of God with 10% of your income, in that same passage, he gives a promise where he says, he says, prove me now therewith. And see if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you, pour you out a blessing that you cannot contain. The truth is this, you cannot outgive God. Now let me just give this disclaimer because we need to give this disclaimer in the day we live in. I am not preaching a prosperity gospel. I'm not, I'm not getting up here like Clefo Dollar or some TV preacher and saying, you sow $100 into the ministry and God's going to give you back 1000 The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't teach that. What the Bible does say is that you cannot outgive God. Now, some, there are some things, see, there are some things that money cannot buy. There are some things, you would agree, that are more valuable than money. There are some things that are more important than money. And God is not only, God can not only be the source of money, which is corruptible, which, is, which will uh, fade away, but God can also be the source of all those other things that money cannot buy. See, I'd rather invest in the work of God 
physically, financially, with money that's going to get destroyed and get devalued and inflation is going to destroy it and have God bless me with blessings that are better than money. But the trick is this, that you cannot outgive God. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now the reason I want to bring this up to you and, and help you understand this is this, because there's this interesting thing we see in this passage of Scripture that we're going to look at tonight, and I want to explain it to you. I was recently asked by uh, a young man here in our church about uh, the types of business books and leadership books that I, I like to read, and obviously I read and study the Bible, but I like to read secular books and, uh, on leadership and business and administration and things like that as well. And, over, and, I, and, and I was, I was being asked, you know, hey, are there any books you recommend? And I was thinking about different books that I've read that I've liked, and as I was writing the sermon, I, I realized that when, when you read some of these books, and of course, I don't recommend and I don't, you know, uh, endorse everything in all of these books. They're secular books written by secular men. But when you read books like The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, when you read books like Entree Leadership or The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People or Developing the Leader Within You or books like that in that category about business and administration and, and, and leadership, what you find is that you'll, you'll, you'll find this consensus. You'll find what I like to call this common denominator, that a lot of these books tend to highlight the same principle or the same similar thing. And one of those things, it's interesting to me, because Jesus said that he came that ye might have life and that ye might have it more abundantly. He said, I didn't only come to give you life, I did not only come to give you new life that you might be born again. He said, I came to give you eternal life, but I also came to make this life better. This life more productive. This life more effective. That doesn't mean there won't be heartaches. That doesn't mean there won't be persecutions. But he said, I came to give you life and that you might have a life more abundantly, that you might accomplish more and do more. And what's interesting is that when you look at the things that John is telling these new converts to do, it's the same things that you find in these leadership type business books. Whenever you study highly successful, highly effective people, you'll begin to see these common denominators. And one of them is this. I'll just give you a little secret. One common denominator you find amongst extremely successful people. I'm not talking about the Bernie Madoffs that, you know, steal people's money and are crooks and that. I'm talking about people who are, and I'm not even talking about saved people because you, did you know that the laws and promises of God applied to any, anybody can do them and they'll work? I mean, anybody, you, you will reap what you sow whether you're saved or not saved. So you, you find just, just normal people that work hard, that build businesses, that are successful, you know what you find? You find that they are extremely generous people. What you find is that people that have a lot of money tend to be very generous. And people, this is what people think. See, some of you are thinking this. I'm going to help you out right now. Here's how broke people think. You had this thought, you're probably broke. I'm not mad at you. I'm just trying to help. I'm just prophesying. Here's how broke people think. Well, if I had, if I had that much money, I'd be generous too. Wrong. They have that much money because they're generous. Broke people think, I'd be generous if I had the money. Successful people think, I'll be generous and I'll be blessed with money. 
I'll be generous and I'll be successful. Why? Because give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over. Shall men give into your bosom for with the same measure that you meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. Here at our church, I've lost count, but I think last time I sat down to count, I think we've got 15 different business orders in our church. Which is an amazing thing when you consider the size of our church. But what I've learned is I've watched some of these guys. I mean, we've got some business owners in our church that are highly successful, very successful. And as I watch these guys and kind of, you know, just walk through life with them, you know, I'll hear things. And, and, and I'll see things. And I hear, you know, this guy's doing this job for this other guy for free. And then this other business owner is doing this other job for this other guy for free. And this other business owner, you know, I hear about these guys just, just, just doing work for each other, helping each other out, calling each other in the middle of the week and showing up and helping them in a bind and helping them in this. And I think to myself, when do these guys ever make money? Every time I, look, I turn around, this guy's helping this guy for free and this guy's on this guy's roof for free and this guy's helping him with this job and this thing. And I think to myself, man, these guys are really successful, but it seems like they're never out there making money. But then I realize the Bible says this, 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 6, are you there? The Bible says, but this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. I'm here to tell you, when you're generous, you cannot give God. Men and women that are generous, men and uh, women that are not cheap, that, are, that, 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 that give of their time and their treasure and their talent, it just somehow works out that God blesses them. God helps them. And God's with them. And we're here, we have John the Baptist looking at these new converts. And I understand that John was a prophet. He was not a pastor. I understand that. But I feel like he almost had the heart of a pastor here at this moment because he's looking at these young converts, converts and they're saying, what shall we do? And he says, you know, the best thing you could do is learn to be generous. Learn to not be cheap. Learn to give. Learn to give away. Learn to invest. Give and it shall be given. Invest in other people. Because Jesus said, give and it shall be given unto you. Because Paul said, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. That's the same idea as with the same measure ye meet. But he which soweth bountifully, he that soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. So we see this first lesson. What is it? Be generous. If I could teach you something tonight, you say, what should we do? What should we do? Here's the lesson. Be generous. Be generous. But I want to give you a second thought tonight. Go back to Luke chapter 3 if you would. The first thing we see John the Baptist teach his new converts is to be generous. He tells the people, he tells the people, be generous. They ask, what shall we do then? And he says, he that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. And I want you to notice, secondly, he tells the second group something different. The first group was the people. He says, be generous. The second group is found in verse 12, Luke chapter 3, verse 12. Notice what he says. Then came also publicans to be baptized and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? Now, notice the first group said, what shall we do then? They were asking the question in response to his sermon. He just got done preaching. They got baptized, just like we do. You know, I preach, and at the end of the service, we do the baptisms. He got done preaching, ye vipers, and, you know, he's preaching a sermon. Then he baptized them. Then they come out, and they said, well, what shall we do then? 
said, you just got done preaching the word of God. What do you want us to do? And he says, you need to be generous. Then this other group, they come up, the publicans, and the way it's worded, it's almost like they were there to hear what he said to the people. So the publicans, then came also publicans to be baptized and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? Well, what do you want us to do? But notice, he gives them a different answer. Verse 13, he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. See, when we're talking to the publicans here, and again, it's not the Republicans, but like the Republicans and the Democrats, they're tax collectors. These people are collecting taxes from the people. They're not only collecting taxes from the people, they're collecting taxes from their own people. So notice they're separate from the people. In verse 10, we have the people. In verse 12, we have the publicans, another group. They said, what shall we do then? And he said, exact no more than that which is appointed you. And he said, well, what does that mean and why, why is he telling them that? Well, go to Luke chapter 19, if you would. Luke chapter 19. Let me show you this as an illustration from maybe the most famous, uh, let me rephrase that, the second most famous tax collector in the Bible. The first is probably Matthew. But let me give you the second. Here's what you need to understand about these tax collectors, these publicans. They were despised and hated by the people because not only did they gather taxes for or on behalf of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire is the empire that is uh, controlling the nation of Israel at this time. So here you have Jews that are working for the enemy, people from Israel that are working for the Roman Empire, and collecting taxes from their own people. That's enough to get you hated. I mean, doesn't everybody kind of hate the IRS? But these people take it a step further, where they're not only collecting taxes from their own people for the Roman government, but they're also collecting more than they're supposed to and pocketing the difference. In fact, history tells us that this was an agreement that Rome had with the publicans throughout the Roman Empire, that they were allowed to collect as much as they could possibly get from the people. And they would have to give whatever was due to Rome, but anything that they kept, that they gathered above that, they were able to keep for themselves. So these people ended up being rich as a result of stealing from their own people. Let me give you an example of that. Uh, and the second most famous tax collector in the Bible the guy named Zacchaeus. Luke chapter 19, are you there? Look at verse 2. Remember Zacchaeus? The Bible says in verse 2, And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the, notice, chief among the publicans. So this wasn't just a publican. He was like their manager. You know, he was like the guy in charge. Chief among the publicans. And he was rich. Now remember when Zacchaeus got saved, verse 8, Notice what he says to Jesus, Luke 19 and verse 8, And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Doesn't that sound like what John told the first group? He says, And if I have taken anything from any man, notice, by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. See, Zacchaeus is admitting to the fact that he had taken more than he was supposed to take, he had taken more by 
false accusation. This is something that the publicans were known for. So when the publicans show up and they ask this question, what shall we do? John, in Luke chapter 3, go back to Luke 3 and verse 13, he says to them, exact no more than that which is appointed you. Now they worked for the Roman government. They worked in collecting taxes. And notice that John didn't say, quit your job. He didn't say, stop protesting the tax system. He didn't say, stop paying taxes. In fact, he said, hey, just make people pay the taxes, but don't charge them more than what is due. He said, go ahead and work for the government, gather the taxes, pay, help people pay their taxes to the government. He says, but exact no more than that which is appointed you. And I'm just saying that to say this, because in a church like ours, when you get around a lot of conservative people, you also get a lot of conspiracy people. And I'm not trying to hurt your feelings, but I'm here to tell you the Bible teaches to pay your taxes. And I know there's a lot of conservative Christians don't like to hear that, and they want to be, you know, be against the government. But the, you, you never find Jesus telling his, his people, don't pay your taxes. And here, John is telling the tax collectors, hey, just do your job, but don't lie. Don't, have, don't take more than is appointed to you. Don't take a false accusation. Because Zacchaeus, we see later on, he says, if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold because they'd stolen from people. So what do we learn from the second group? The first group, John says, be generous to the people. The second group, John says, be just. He says, be just to the publicans. He says, be just. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, if you would. We were just there in 2 Corinthians, if you can make your way back there. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. While you turn there, let me, go, let me read to you from the book of Micah. Micah in the Old Testament, Micah chapter 6. You turn to 2 Corinthians 8. You don't have to turn to Micah. I'm just going to read this to you, but you might want to jot this reference down if it interests you. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8 is one of two verses that, that are very similarly worded. And it's a very interesting verse. I know you're not there, but let me read it to you. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8 says this, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee? In Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, we are told that Micah is going to tell us what it is that the Lord requires of thee and of me, of us. It's a very interesting verse. He says, here's what the Lord requires of you. Here's what the Lord requires of us. And then he tells us to do three things. The first thing is to do justly. The second thing is, and to love mercy. The third thing is, and to walk humbly with thy God. He says, you want to know what the Lord requires of you? He requires that you do justly, that you love mercy, and that you walk humbly. But the first thing he tells us there is to do justly. What is it that John tells these publicans, these people that have been stealing from their own people? He says, be just. He says, be just, be honest, have integrity. Second Corinthians 8, look at verse 21. Notice what the Bible says about Christians. It says, providing for honest things. Not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Let me tell you something. There ought not be a more honest people on this earth than God's people. Amen. You ought to be, look, the most honest person at your job ought to be you. You say, why? Because you're a Christian, that's why. 
As a Christian, you ought to tell the truth. As a Christian, you ought not take money for times that you weren't working. As a Christian, you shouldn't steal from your boss. You shouldn't steal. You, you, you know, Pastor, are you anti-government? Where I'm anti-government. I think we're all anti-government at this point. But you know what? You ought to pay your taxes and not steal from the government. Ought, we ought to be just, providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. We ought to be just. We ought to do justly. We ought to do right. You know what's interesting? When you study highly successful people, not only do you find that highly successful people, I'm talking about in the business world, not only do you find that highly successful businessmen are uh, generous, but you find that highly successful people, they also have almost an obsession with integrity. They're obsessed with being honest, with not lying and not being lied to, with, with surrounding themselves with people that don't mislead them, that don't lie to them, and they don't mislead and lie to others. See, when you study successful people, you find that they're very generous and that they have a strong character for integrity. Then we have John telling these new converts, you know what you ought to do? If you're asking me what you ought to do, let me tell you what I think you ought to do. You ought to be generous, and you ought to be just. You ought to tell the truth. You ought not exact more than it is appointed unto you. You ought to have an honest lifestyle. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you would, 1 Peter chapter 2, towards the end of the New Testament, you have Revelation, Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John, 2nd, and 1st Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. The Bible says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. 1 Peter 2 and verse 12. Notice, having your conversation. The word conversation is, referring to a, is, is defined as a lifestyle, a conduct or a behavior. Having your conversation, notice, honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. We ought to be honest people. I didn't say we should be fake. Obviously, none of us are perfect. But we ought to have a strive to be honest, to be just, to do right, to not be deceptive. Having a conversation honest among the Gentiles, providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Let me give you the third one. Go to Luke chapter 3. We had the first group. Remember who they were? The people. What did John tell them? He said, be generous. If you have two coats, find someone that has no coat and give them one. If you have enough food for you and your family, find someone that has no food and give them some. The second group, we have the publicans. He says, exact no more than that which is appointed. The first group, he said to the people, he says, be generous. To the second group, the publicans, he says, be just. Then we have the third group. What's the third group? Look at verse 14. And the soldiers. We could call this the public servants. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, and what shall we do? And he said unto them, notice what he says. He says, do no violence to no man. Neither accuse any falsely and be content with your wages. Notice he gives the third group, the group of soldiers, a third set of instructions. He's looking at soldiers and he says, do violence to no man. 
neither accuse any man falsely, and be content with your wages. Now, some people believe, and they believe this wrongly, that the Bible teaches to be a pacifist. A pacifist is one who does not believe in ever uh, defending themselves or fighting or engaging in any war. And I realize that there are definitely some wars that are not just and that, that are not of God. But the Bible does teach that war is something. Look, the Bible calls God himself a man of war. So the Bible does not teach people to be pacifists. You know, and through the years, there have been different religions that have taught these things, that we're not supposed to fight, we're not supposed to defend ourselves. And people look at this passage and say, you know, here, John told the soldiers to do violence to no man, so he's telling them not to fight. Well, what's wrong with that is, is the fact that you're defining the word violence in an incorrect way. Because you're using the modern term or the, our modern definition for the word violence and not understanding that the Bible uses the word violence in a different way. Now, I can prove that to you, not just through the definition, but through the text itself. Because here John says, do violence to no man. And people say, see, that means they're not supposed to fight. They're not supposed to go to war. They're not supposed to battle. Well, here's the problem with that. He also tells, tells the soldiers, neither accuse any falsely. And he tells the soldiers, and be content with your wages. Now, what are soldiers getting wages for? What are they getting paid for? They're getting paid to fight. So is John telling them, hey, don't fight anymore and be content with your wages? Well, that would go against what he just told the publicans, to be honest. To get, to get paid for something that you're not willing to do is not honest. You say, well, what's the contradiction here? There's no contradiction. You just need to understand. Today, we use the word violence for pretty much any sort of you know, public or the public, uh, physical contact, like fighting, you know, you can have two guys in a ring sparring and we'll say that, you know, people say that's violence, that's violent. But the Bible doesn't use the word violence in that way. The word violence in the Bible, it comes from the same root word as the word to violate. Here's what John is telling the soldiers. He's not telling them, hey, don't fight. Obviously, they're being paid to go and fight for the Roman Empire, to fight as soldiers, to, to battle. What John is telling them, he says, do, no, do violence to no man. Here's what he's saying. Don't violate anyone. Neither accuse any falsely and be content with your wages. You say, why is John telling the soldiers this? Here's why. Because all throughout history, it is a known fact that sometimes when soldiers go off to battle, they find themselves on a foreign field somewhere in the midst of battle, you know, because of just the, 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 the tragedy of war, people lose their minds, and then all of a sudden they find themselves in some village on a foreign field somewhere after they've won a battle, and now they think it's okay to rape and pillage and kill and John is telling these soldiers, hey, I know you got a job. I know your job is to go out and fight. I know your job is to go out and protect uh, uh, society. I know that's what you're getting paid to do, and you should be content with your wages. But when you're out there doing what you're supposed to do, do violence to no man. He says, don't violate people. Neither accuse any falsely. He says, look, do what you got to do within the parameters of your job, but don't go rape anybody. Don't go plum, uh, you know, plunder and steal from people just because you're in a war zone. He says, just be content with your wages. 
Just because you're in a war zone and you see somebody, and this is, you know, we can apply it today and whenever in our society today, you know, some tornado or some hurricane will hit a town and just because there's no cops anywhere and people are kind of sheltering in place, people think it's okay to, you know, start breaking windows and stealing TVs. It's like, hey, just because you find yourself in a, in a, in a situation like a war zone where people aren't paying attention, it's not okay to violate or do violence just be content with your wages. You're getting paid. Just be content with your wages. So why don't you notice the message from John to these soldiers is be content. Be content. He says, and be content with your wages. He says, be content with your job, the fact you're getting paid, and don't go out and accuse people falsely. Don't go out and violate people. Don't steal from people. Don't use your power and your might and your authority to violate people. Go to Philippians just real quickly. Philippians chapter 4. Let's just quickly look at this passage on contentment. Most famous passage in the Bible on contentment. Paul says this in Philippians 4 verse 11. Not that I speak in respect of want. Why don't you notice these words? He says, for I have learned. Just notice that phrase. For I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. Notice these two words, I know. He said, in verse 11, he says, for I have learned. Then in verse 12, he says, I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. Notice these words, I am instructed. You see that? He says in verse 11, for I have learned. He says in verse 12, I know. He says in verse 12, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and suffer need. Let me tell you something. The secret to contentment, here's what people think. They think, when I get everything I want, I'll be content. When I get all my ducks in a row, when I finally live in the house I want to live in, I finally drive the vehicle I want to drive in, I finally get the, 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 the promotion that I want or the raise that I want, once I get everything I want, then I'll be content. The, the problem with that is that you'll never get everything you want. Because as soon as you get that brand new, you know, phone that does your laundry and cooks you lunch, they're going to come out with another one that also, you know, makes a better lunch or whatever. I don't know. See, there's no end to your wants. So Paul says the secret to contentment. See, people think contentment is something that happens to them. I get married, I have kids, I buy a house, I have this, I, have, you know, I buy a dog. Let me tell you something, getting a dog is the last thing that will make you content. <laughs> Especially a stupid puppy. They think contentment is something that happens to me. No, no, no. Contentment is not something that happens to you. You happen to contentment. You learn to be content. He says, for I have learned. He says, I am instructed. He says, I know. See, people that are content, they didn't, it didn't happen to them. They chose and they've learned to be content. And they can say, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Amen. And I can be content with much or with little. Amen. He says, I know both how to be a base and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And here's what's interesting. Is that as you study highly successful people, you'll find that they're not only generous, you'll find that they're not only obsessed with integrity, 
But you'll also find that highly successful people have found the balance between drive and contentment. Highly successful people are often driven. There's something that gets them out of bed in the morning. They're, they're, they they want to win. They want to succeed. They're driven people. Nothing wrong with that. But there's a difference between being driven and ambitious. See, they're not so driven that they're going to uh, cross their integrity to lie and steal and cheat to get ahead. Because they've learned a balance between being driven and content. Being driven to accomplish more and do more, but yet being content where at the end of the day, wherever we find ourselves, whatever we've accomplished, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. So we have John telling this third group of people, the public servants. I wish somebody would tell our public servants today, hey, be content. He says, don't take advantage of people. Don't violate people. Be content with such things as you have. Go back to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. I'm going to shift gears here for a second. We're, we're in the conclusion, okay? We're almost done, but I'm going to shift gears on the conclusion because I want to show you a couple of things at the end of this passage to set us up for next week when we're in Luke. But while you turn there, let me just give you some ending thoughts on these, these ideas from these three groups, the people, the publicans, the public servants. You know what's interesting is that everyone had their own areas to work on. Did you notice that all three groups were different? And John told the groups to work in the area in which they were lacking. See, he told the people who were poor, be generous. He said, why would you tell poor people to be generous? Because when you're poor, it's hard to be generous. But when the publicans showed up who were rich, and they said, oh man, what shall we do then? I'm sure they were hoping that John would say, hey, be generous, because they had so much money, it would be easy to be generous. But John says to them, uh, don't worry about being generous, uh, just stop stealing from people. And they're like, oh man, well that's actually what we're doing. See, John was applying it to their lives. He was looking at people that were poor and saying, you need to learn to be generous. He was looking at people that were stealing and he said, you need to exact that which is appointed unto you. He was looking at people that were maybe uh, taking their authority a little too far and violating others and saying, you need to be content with your wages and quit violating people. Do violence to no man. Everyone was told to work in the area in which they were lacking. He didn't tell the rich publicans to give. That would have been easy for them. He told the rich publicans to stop stealing. You know, one lesson we can learn from this story is this, that everyone can do something right where they're at. People that are not content get this idea, well, I could really serve the Lord. If I, if I had a different job, I could really serve the Lord. No, you could serve the Lord in the job you're in. You could serve the Lord in the state you're in. You could serve the Lord whatever position you find yourself in. Hey, in that place, you could serve the Lord. He didn't tell any one of them, you got to quit your job. He didn't tell any one of them, you got to do this, you got to do that. He said, right where you're at, you can serve God and you can serve the Lord. Look at Luke chapter 3 and verse 15. We're going to finish this up, but I, I, I want to just transition a little bit and kind of give you some closing thoughts here with, with this passage. In verses 15 through 20, we have the end of this uh, story with John and his ministry and his preaching. In verse 15, the Bible says this, and as the people were in expectation, 
that word expectation is referring to the fact that people were looking at John and they were expecting something from him. They were looking at him with hope and expectation that was incorrect. What they were hoping or what they were expecting was that John was the Messiah, that John was the Christ, and they were wrong about that. John was not the Messiah. He was the forerunner to the Messiah. And as the people were in expectation, and all men muse, the word muse means to ponder or to think about, and all men muse in their hearts of John, notice, whether he were the Christ or not, the word Christ means Messiah, John answered, saying unto them all. So they're all, you know, they're just kind of standing back and they're watching this guy John preach. And they're like, is this the Messiah? Is this the Christ? And John understood that this is something that people were saying about him or he overheard them talking about this. So he responds to them in verse 16. John answered, saying unto them all. He says, I indeed baptize you with water. He said, I'm doing a water baptism. I'm taking you under the water and bringing you up out of the water. He said, but that water baptism, it's just an ordinance. It's a symbol. It's symbolic of what uh, of, of something else. He says, I indeed baptize you with water. He says, but one mightier than I cometh. Because they're thinking... He's the Messiah, and he's telling them, no, no, I'm just baptizing you with water, but there's one mightier than I uh, who's coming. We know, of course, that's Jesus. He says, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He said, I'm not even worthy to tie and untie his shoes. He says, he, referring to Jesus, shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. He says, look, I'm baptizing you in water, but there's a mightier one coming that will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now, let me just quickly, just as we finish tonight, explain these baptisms he's referring to. The first one he's referring to here, the baptism of the Holy Ghost. The Charismatics like to make a big deal about baptism of the Holy Ghost. And uh, let me just show you a couple of things. Go to Acts chapter 2, if you would. You're there in, in Luke. You have uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter 2. The baptism of the Holy Ghost is referred to in different ways throughout the Bible. But I just want to help you understand this. The baptism of the Holy Ghost is a reference to the empowering of the Holy Ghost. The baptism of the Holy Ghost is not something that happens at the point of salvation. um, Because the disciples, the Bible tells us that they received the Holy Spirit. When Jesus resurrected from the grave, he breathed on them and they received the Holy Ghost. But then they were told to go and wait for the filling of the Holy Spirit, which happened at the day of Pentecost. So the Bible teaches, and I don't have time to develop this tonight. You know, I preached a whole series on the Holy Spirit, and I preached through a doctoral series on this, and I've taught a lot about this in different sermons. You can go and learn more about it in in one of those sermons. But the Bible teaches that when you and I get saved, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, But then Christians can be empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's called walking in the Spirit. And that term is used throughout the Bible in different ways. The empowering of the Holy Spirit is referred throughout the Scriptures as the filling of the Holy Spirit or the coming upon of the Holy Spirit or the pouring of the Holy Spirit or what we see here, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. See, the word baptism simply means to uh, submerge or to put under something. 
We believe in water baptism because we take people under the water and bring them up out of the water. That's why sprinkling doesn't work because you don't go under the water. But the baptism of the Holy Ghost is when you are submerged, you are filled, you are surrounded by the Holy Ghost. This happened in Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. Notice what the Bible says. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. Notice, and it filled all the house. The Holy Ghost filled the house. They're in the house and they are being baptized in the Holy Ghost. They're being empowered by the Holy Ghost. And they were all sitting and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire and it sat upon each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So John talks about the fact that there's one coming mightier than high. He says, who shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And that is a reference to the day of Pentecost. That is a reference to the empowering, the filling of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost coming upon you, the Holy Ghost being poured upon you. All these terms are used interchangeably. It's all referring to the power of the Holy Spirit. But I want to show you something quickly. Go back to Luke chapter 3 and verse 16. There's two things he mentions here. At the end of verse 16, he says, He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. He says, And with fire. And with fire. Two, you could look at this, and I, I want to word it this way because I'm not dogmatic on this. I'm just going to teach you something that I think. As two different baptisms that are being mentioned here. One with the Holy Ghost and one with fire. Now some people, uh, and many people, will believe that the baptism of the Holy Ghost and with fire is referring to the same baptism. And, and there's an argument to be made for that. That's why I don't, I'm not super dogmatic about it. Because, for example, when we saw in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house, uh, the Bible says that there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. So people will say, see, that's the baptism with fire. And if that's your position on it, I don't disagree with you. You know, we can study the Bible and, and, and see different things. I just want you to notice that he mentions fire, he says the baptism of the Holy Ghost and with fire in verse 16. And then in verse 17, Luke chapter 3 and verse 17, he gives us this passage that when you look at it, it's without a doubt a reference to judgment. Luke chapter 3, 17. Whose fan is in his hand? Whose hand? He's talking about the one who is coming after him, who is mightier than him, the one whose shoe latchet he's not worthy to unloose. He says that one that's coming, his fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will, notice, burn with fire unquenchable. You say, what is that referring to? Well, let me help you define some of these words here. The, the wording here, if you've read the Bible, you know this is a wording in regards to judgment. When you see these types of words, it's a reference to judgment. Notice he says, whose fan is in his hand. We'll talk about the fan here in a minute. He will thoroughly purge his floor. This is an illustration of the harvest being taken up, which the harvest throughout the Bible is a picture of the rapture and, uh, and the day that we're raptured out of here. He says, and will gather the wheat into his gardener. Wheat represents believers and Christians all throughout the Bible. 
And here he says that he's going to gather the wheat into his garner. The word garner means uh, to collect into a storehouse or into a barn. But the chaff, this is not the wheat, he will burn with fire unquestionable. Uh, unquenchable. He said, what is being referred to here? Well, when he says he will thoroughly purge his floor, the modern term that you and I would use today for that phrase would be winnowing. And let me just read to you a little definition for winnowing. Winnowing is the process. In fact, go, go to Psalm, if you would, Psalm 1. Just real quickly, Psalm 1. And um, let me show you this to you real quickly. Winnowing is the process in the time of harvest. It is a process by which the, uh, the chaff is separated from the grain. In its simplest form, it involves throwing the mixture into the air so that the wind blows away the lighter chaff while the heavier grains fall back down for recovery. So what they would do is they would take the wheat and the wheat would be mixed up with all this chaff. But the wheat itself is heavier than the chaff. So they would throw it into the air and as the wind would blow, the wheat that was heavier would fall to the ground where it could be piled up and recovered and taken into the garner or the barn. As they threw it into the air and the wind would blow, the chaff would be carried away by the wind and it would be separated from the wheat. On days when there was no wind or not much wind and they had to do this, they would use a fan where they would throw it up in the air and then they would blow it to create today, they would use like, a, like an electric fan, to create the wind to separate the chaff from the wheat. This is what the Bible is referring to. Are you there in Psalm 1? Remember this passage of Scripture, a very famous psalm, the first psalm in, in, in the book of Psalms? Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Look at verse 4. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Notice the Bible says, hey, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. It's all about the man that's walking with the Lord. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. But then the contrast is the ungodly are not so. The ungodly are not like a tree planted by the rivers of water, but they are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So notice that throughout the Bible, the chaff is a reference to the ungodly. Now just real quickly, go to Matthew chapter 13, and let me illustrate this for you. John brings up the fact that there's one coming who's mightier than I, John says, whose shoe latches I'm not worthy to unloose. He says he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost, and we know that's the baptism of the day of Pentecost, the empowering of the Holy Spirit, and he says, and fire. Now, some people would say the fire is referring to the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and I won't argue that. That may be so. But it's interesting, though, that in the very next verse, he begins to talk about judgment. He says, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor. He's going to clean up the floor. He's going to get all the chaff out of the floor and will gather the wheat into the garner, into the storehouse, into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. 
In Matthew 13, we have a parable that is not exactly like this, but it's, it's so close, you just have to look at it. Notice what it says in Matthew 13. We, I preach a whole sermon out of Matthew 13's parable. I'm not going to do that, but just look at it quickly, and we'll, we'll be done here soon. Matthew 13, 24. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares. Now, what's a tear? A tear is a weed. It is a worthless plant. has no value. The problem with the weed is that it resembles wheat when young. So here we have a man which sowed good seed. He sowed wheat in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares. Somebody was trying to be mean to this guy, and while he was sleeping, he sowed tares in the same field where he sowed wheat. They sowed tares, which are weeds that look like wheat. And when they're young, they look exactly like wheat, and you have to wait till they're full grown for you to be able to figure out which one's actually wheat and which ones are tares. Look at verse 26. Um, Well, verse 25. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Verse 26. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares, the weeds, also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Will thou then that we go and gather them up? He's talking about the fact that there's a field growing with both wheat and tares. And they didn't notice it till the fruit sprung up. And now he's saying, do you want us to go and separate them? Verse 29. But he said, nay, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. By the way, I don't have time to preach this, but this whole thing is about the end of the world, the harvest, the fact that there are fake Christians among us. In the wheat, there are tares. And honestly, they're not going to go away till God separates them. But he said, Nay, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Verse 30, let both grow together, notice, until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather ye together first the tares and bind them in bundles, notice, to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. We have the same idea that the wheat and the tares or the wheat and the chaff are going to be separated. One is going to be gathered into the barn, into the garner, into the storehouse. The other one is going to be separated to burn. What is this referring to? Go to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. I believe, and you may disagree with me, and if you do, that's fine. I don't want to argue with you. That John is referring to the fact, he's saying, look, I'm baptizing you with water, but there is coming one that's going to baptize you. And people might say, well, I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe Jesus existed. Well, I'm here to tell you, it doesn't matter whether you believe in him or not, Jesus is going to baptize you. He's either going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost or he's going to baptize you with fire. Because at the harvest, he's going to separate the wheat and the chaff The wheat, he already told us, is going to be baptized with the Holy Ghost. And he tells us he's going to take the chaff or the tares, and he's going to baptize them in fire. 
You say, what does that mean? Well, it means that he's going to put them in a place where they are consumed with fire, where they are uh, put into the fire. They're going to be baptized with fire. It's interesting to me because in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10, we have a description of hell. And I want you to notice how it's described. Revelation 20 and verse 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into, notice, the lake of fire. The lake of fire and brimstone. When I, when I read the lake of fire and brimstone, I think of like lava. Like fire in a liquid form. The lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night, forever and ever, and death and hell were cast into, notice, the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into, don't miss it, the lake of fire. See, Either Jesus is going to baptize you into the Holy Ghost and when you get saved or as a result of salvation, or he's going to baptize you one day into the lake of fire. You're going to be put into the lake of fire. He's going to separate. See, John says, he says, there's coming one that's mightier than I. He said, I'm only baptizing you with water, but there's coming one that's mightier than I. He says, one whose shoe latches I'm not worthy to unloose. He said, he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. He says, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his gardener. But the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. See, I don't believe in Jesus. It doesn't matter. He's going to baptize you. I'd rather get saved. And and let me me help you understand something, and I, I need to be done. But in Revelation chapter 20, what we have is a picture of the great white throne. That's what's being illustrated. And the Bible teaches that we'll all be there. Every one of us will be there. The Bible says that the the time and, and space have fled away. We will all be there, all present. Now, if you're saved, you will not be judged at the great white throne. You'll be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. You will not be judged to see whether you're saved or not. You're, if you're saved, you will not be that, but you will be present. And we will watch as Jesus has the dead, as the books are opened and they're judged, and angels escort them into the lake of fire and baptize them and submerge them into the lake of fire. And at that point, it'll be too late. But you and I right now, like we talked about this morning, can go out and teach people the knowledge of salvation. Because Jesus will baptize you one way or another, in the Holy Ghost or in fire. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for these passages of Scripture. Lord, I pray you'd help us to just learn these things and be motivated. Lord, help us to be Christians who ask this great question, what shall we then do? What shall we do then? Help us to be generous. Help us to be just. Help us to be content. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.